into the swing of things here on the podcast by playing a song from the band Bottle Caps for Dollars. The name of the song is Sarsaparilla Godzilla. You can hear it on their album Episode 1. You can find Bottle Caps for Dollars on Reverb Nation, Facebook, Bandcamp, and right here on Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It is your home for classic monsters, modern talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. Welcome to episode 251 of the show. That's right. The first 250 episodes was preparing us for the... Well, okay, not really. This is a regular Monster Kid Radio episode where we're going to talk about a classic, maybe it's a not-so-classic monster movie, with, well, we're just going to call him a classic guest here on Monster Kid Radio. Stephen D. Sullivan is coming back to the show to talk about the South Korean kaiju film Yangari. Yeah. Yangari. This movie just came out on Blu-ray, courtesy of Kino. Came out earlier this month. I picked it up as a blind buy, and now Yangari, Monster from the Deep, is something that I can say that I watched for the first time in 2016, and is something that I'm going to talk about with Steve here in a second. Before we get to Steve, there's a couple of things. First, in the conversation, I actually mixed up a couple of names. Now, we corrected it, but just so you know, sit tight. When I screw up a name, it's going to be corrected there in a moment. And secondly, having nothing to do with Yangari, but having everything to do with a former guest of Monster Kid Radio, Joshua Kennedy, who was on the show episode 249, I believe. He's a filmmaker out of New York, and he is a monster kid just like you and me. He's been making classic monster movies for film school. I mean, he's a film school student right now, and one of his movies just played at the Miami International Science Fiction Film Festival. The movie was Slave Girls on the Moon. I bring it up because it won the award for Best Comedy at the Film Festival. So Joshua, congratulations. And listeners, you can learn more about Joshua by looking him up on Facebook. Or, as always, there will be a link to his Facebook page in the show notes. All right, let's go ahead and get to Steve, that giant South Korean monster, and even a round of the Classic Five. Oh, and just so you know, Steve and I, we spoil Yangari. We do talk about the final scene, even. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, go out and watch it, then come right back here. We'll wait for you. Okay, you back? All right, so let's get to it right after this. The slave girls on the moon, enslaved to every cruel desire of an evil madman. You have been imprisoned for having flown through the forbidden stars. Prisoner will receive a minimum of 64 years. 64 years? What about my life? The personal life is dead on the moon. Brutalized and <laughs> savaged by creatures who are only half men. How was your first night, Chloe? Did you sleep well? Yes, I did. Strange. No one ever sleeps well here in Beswick. <laughs> and women who are more than all women. Now, remove your garments. Right now? Don't be shy. You're among friends. Now, only one woman can rescue them from the warden who maims tender bodies for his own selfish ends. Do you know what the warden's nickname for me is? Chopstick! <gasps> A talent show? Yeah. The show will be our cover. We'll have this rehearse, the other half will be digging beneath the stage. Gordon will kill us all dead. Who is in my office? Yeah, 
Yeah, suppose I tell the warden about this plan. Then I'll whoop your ass. But I sure as hell am not going to die 100,000 years after I'm supposed to. We're not going to let any of you out of our sight from now on. Even in the showers? Especially in the showers. This summer, get ready. Guns, women, pineapples, catfights, golden suits, thousands in the cast, millions in the making. Slay girls on the moon. Suggested for mature audiences. It's going to be awesome. In each fortnight to the IndyCast, the world's number one Indiana Jones fan podcast. Trust me. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and interviews with on-screen and behind-the-scenes talent who help bring to life the greatest adventure movie series ever made. Each episode has the latest from the world of Indiana Jones, as well as interactive segments, trivia, contests, and specials, including radio dramas and music retrospectives. The IndyCast. It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. Available in iTunes or listen directly at theindycast.com. If adventure has a name, it must be The IndyCast. There's a huge monster gorilla that's constantly growing to outlandish proportions loose in the streets. Conga, born of a scientist's dreams, bred on a madman's nightmares, brought out of the jungle and turned into a wild beast beyond man's understanding. I am your master and you must obey me. Now you no longer have any. Starring Michael Goff as Dr. Decker, who stole the jungle secrets of sorcery to distill Satan's black magic in his own laboratory. Margot Johns as the girl who becomes an accessory to murder, with Claire Gordon as the young student. Trapped with a madman in a nightmare world of fear, jealousy and passion. Let me go! Sandra, you know I loved you! The jungle scene of color, excitement, and spectacle is thrillingly mixed with the close mystery of strange insectivorous and carnivorous plants. See them. Fear them. And feel the anger and the anguish of Jess Conrad in a picture charged with powerful emotion. Hunger, the most fantastic beast of all time. Not since King Kong has a screen exploded with such mighty fury and spectacle. In the new process of spectamation and Eastman color, he grows in size and terror before your eyes. In a film that fills the screen with giant entertainment. Kid Radio listeners, I wanted to have Stephen D. Sullivan on the show to talk about this movie because he assured me that he can correctly pronounce all the names of the cast and crew. Oh, did I? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm, I I must have been drunk when I said that, but okay. (laughs) Steve, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here again. 
<laughs> so this is the first real episode of 2016. I mean, I did one last week, but this is our first movie episode. Steve, how's the new year treating you? Uh, the new year is treating me pretty well. You know, I've had to, had some friends that have passed away, and David Bowie going is not a great thing. But personally, yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Glad to hear that. And you've got, well, about the not too bad part, that is, that, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we talked about this last week when you called in your voicemail. CushingHorrors.com is up and running. CushingHorrors.com is up and running. That connects you to my Patreon page where Cushing Horrors may be one of the stories that end up in this arc that I'll be doing every month on Patreon. But you can also go there from sdsullivan.com. There's a big link that I made to click onto Patreon, and it'll be at the end of all the free stories and stuff, too. So uh, like a lot of my friends, I'm hoping that to do a little bit of micropayments where people can pitch in a buck or two, and every month they're going to get free stories. And we're starting with Canoe Cops versus the Mummy, which some of you may be familiar with from the Christopher Mim podcast over at sainteuphoria.com. And this is the print version of that. So we're starting with that, and Cushing Horrors is on the future, and maybe Frost Arrow and Manos and Dracula Project, that is the secret Dracula Project. We'll, uh, that's the code name for it. We'll see if that also <laughs> comes about. But there are a lot of exciting things going on, and, and people can tune in and get free stuff. Depending upon how many people show up, uh, could be as much as once a week. Or more. Well, we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. We did that last week. We'll do it again this week. I just am really excited because, Steve, you're one of my favorite people to have on the show. And, you know, the more that I get to know you, and I, I consider you a pretty good friend, but the longer yeah, that I too. get to know you, the more I realize that I've actually had you in my life one way or the other going back years with the <laughs> role-playing game material and that sort of thing. And just right. to see you continue to succeed in these things that I love, I mean, it just makes me happy. And if I can help out with that by letting people know about the site, I'm more than happy to do that. Right. Yeah, I've been hanging around in professional publishing for almost 36 years now. And a little bit before that as kind of a fan. You could find me on letter calls and things like that. But it's a, a long list of things that I've worked on and Every once in a while, I'll surprise somebody. I mean, you started out knowing that I'd worked on Chill, so I was one of the one of the creators at Pace Setter, the original Chill game, and of course Dungeons and Dragons. I was with that in what they now call uh, Moldvay Cook, basic and expert. And then I worked on one fairly famous product for the Star Wars game with my friend Troy Denning, who now writes Star Wars books and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Speed Racer and, you know, all the way up to the, the Iron Man novelization, which was the last really high-profile thing that I did since I'm now working on my own stuff rather oh, than oh, other people's stuff, mostly. Wait, wait, so, wait, 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 wait. TMNT? What did you have to do with TMNT? I wrote a whole bunch of the color Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle books for Mirage slash Archie. Oh, Okay. And I also did, uh, I was, I was one of the, for a while I was one of their main writers and they put out the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle source book. Oh no, seriously? Comics, and I wrote a bunch of the entries. In fact, they gave me all the turtle entries to write. So I wrote, uh, you know, Michelangelo and Donatello and Raphael and, uh, Leonardo, among other things in that book. There was me and, uh, the other guy, Dean Clarain, who was like the main writer did most of the writing in the source books, so that was a lot of fun, too. Are you serious? Yeah. Steve. Yeah, they, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they were great people to work for. Mirage was 
probably the best people I ever worked for. They were just, every level, they were great. So, yeah, like I said, Steve's been in my life one way or the other without really actually being yeah, in my more life. more surprises. I think the last thing you were surprised about was the Star Wars. Yeah, things. the Galaxy Guide that you did with uh, with The uh, Galaxy Guide. Boy, yeah, yep. that's... Which became part of the canon of the universe, much to our surprise. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> this is not Derek reminisces about the things Steve contributed to his childhood podcast. <laughs> right. No, that would make me feel very old if we start doing that. And I'm, I'm really not that old. In, in the I'm not that old category, though, I did realize there was uh, the original Doctor Who, his, uh, the actor that played him turned 108 this, this week, or he would have if uh, he had been alive. That was William Hartnell. And... I looked him up, and I realized that at the time he started playing Doctor Who, and he looked really old, like a really old guy. He's like, oh, he's my age. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but, you know, back in the 60s, when you were in your 50s, you looked like you were in your 70s. So Is that how that works? <laughs> yeah, that's how that works. Okay, so, okay. so don't make me feel any older, because I'm already the age of the first really ancient-looking Doctor Who. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get off the age thing. You know, no, no, no. You know, I mean, although you could be a time lord and just you know, ageless, it doesn't really matter. You'll just regenerate, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? I could deal with that. If you know, if you're hearing this in the far future and, and technology is at that point, you can come back and kidnap me from my own timeline right as I'm about to die and regenerate me. That'd be great. <laughs> Listen to me make Doctor Who references like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway. We're going to go to a South Korean monster film. Now, fortunately, or unfortunately, the version that exists isn't in the English language. So we at least can suss out the character names in English. At least Steve and I can. Yes. I say unfortunately because this is the only version of the film that exists in its entirety. Right. I was really surprised to find out find out that was true because I always thought this was kind of a you know, it's not a, a great film, but it's an important film, certainly in, in kaiju history and probably in the history of Korean cinema. I mean, this is the film that if you're into monster movies and you've seen anything from Korea uh, other than the um, – oh, I'm going to forget the name of it. There was one that came out just a few years ago. Before that, Yongari was the one. And the one I'm thinking of is The Host, which is a terrific film. I keep hearing that. One of these days, yeah. I'll watch it. it. It's really good. It's kind of a. It's kind of got a bummer moments in it. It's really well put together, and it's uh, got a lot of cool stuff in it too. This one is perhaps the first big monster movie from South Korea. It's obvious. It's certainly the oldest one that exists today. There are a couple that were produced before this that may or may not have been giant monsters, but nobody's seen them, so nobody really knows for sure if they were giant monsters, so this one is it. And I wanted to ask your opinion on this. You mentioned kaiju. Kaiju is a Japanese word. Right. Do we still call a non-Japanese giant monster movie a kaiju film? You know, that's a tough call in a way. My feeling, generally, is if it's a guy in a suit, mm -hmm. it can qualify. Okay. So, you know, under that definition, you could probably also say that Gorgo qualifies when Conga qualifies, and even the uh, 1978 King Kong, the U.S. King Kong, where he climbs the World Trade Center. I don't remember which exactly which year that came out. It was, it was the 70s. I think we're actually in an anniversary year right now of that one. So 76. 76 yeah. then, yeah. That's, that's entirely possible. So, in my opinion, if it's a guy in a rubber suit, I, I'm 
generous enough to to say this is a a kaiju film. Yeah, kaiju enough. Yeah, it's kaiju enough. <laughs> okay, you know, I mean, this and uh, Pulgasari from North Korea. I, I'd definitely say they're kaiju. I mean, they even had Japanese directors, cinematographers, and stuff working on them to kind of make them well, give them that look. So, uh, well, the Pulgasari one definitely had Japanese people working on it. <laughs> yeah, kidnapped Japanese people. Yeah, they they didn't have a choice. Uh- <laughs> nope, they didn't. But in any case, I mean, kaiju means, as you know, strange beast. Right. So, yeah, this this qualifies. I mean, generally it's come to mean rubber suit monster when my my friend who's fluent in Japanese when I many many years ago now when I he was talking about kaiju and I was like, "Well, what the heck does that mean?" And he said, "That means rubber suit monster." There you go. <laughs> so, uh, Edward, this is on you. <laughs> Well, we talked about the Japanese being involved in Pulgasari. There was some Japanese involvement in Yangari as well. Uh, Toei was involved mm-hmm. in the production of this. And Toei is a Japanese film TV production company based out of Tokyo. Uh, you know, they did a lot of animation. I think people might know them for things like Kamen Rider. Well, that's not animated, but like Kamen Rider, Devil Man. The series that eventually became Mighty Morphin Power Rangers over here, Super Sentai. So right. they're still around. I don't know much about the studio outside of their involvement in some of these other properties that I'm still trying to explore a little bit, like Common Writer. I won't profess to know a lot about them either. I can kind of see their logo in my mind, but other than that, it's like, oh, which ones did they do? I'm not sure. <laughs> so they helped out with the production, but the direction, the actors, the actresses, they were all South Korean. And my understanding is, is that the director, Kim Kiduk, or Kiduk, you pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> Kiduk Kim is the way uh, I'm seeing it on IMDb, which is, you know, probably in the correct word order. Kim being last name, right? (laughs) Uh, Sure. I'd say Kiduk Kim. My understanding is that he was a director of note. You know, this is a monster movie. It's a rubber suit monster movie. But my understanding is that he was more held in higher regard than just a monster movie maker. Yeah, well, you know, if if we remember in in Japan, a lot of people that were Mm -hmm. class A talent in the movie industry, did plenty of kaiju films as right. well. Right. So that's not – I mean, that that doesn't seem unusual to me. It's certainly not like Korea had a huge uh, giant monster industry. True. That they were – you know, could have just dedicated actors and actresses and that kind of stuff and production people working on. So – yeah, no, it makes it makes good sense that he would do other stuff. Now, I I don't think I'm familiar with anything no. else that he has done. Yeah, neither, neither am I. I'm not familiar with anything about the cast, the crew, any of this. Right, My yeah, South no, Korean film know, knowledge kind of quick look up on some of them and was like, no, I don't know any of the stuff they're working on. It's not like it's not like we have the the affinity for that that we do for a lot of the Japanese film industry where. You see them in the kaiju films, and then you'll probably see them in Japanese spy films. And then, you know, I mean, recently you and I were watching Campus Go-Go and <laughs> watching and marveling at all the, the interesting people that were in that and the, the cool surf guitar licks and all those kind of things. So That was awesome. <laughs> but the, the Korean end of the film industry has never really kind of come into America the way that the Japanese industry did. And I'm not really sure why that is. I mean, certainly after World War II with the Korean War and stuff, we certainly had plenty of connections with them the way we do with Japan. But for whatever reason, the films didn't connect. Maybe maybe they didn't 
westernize as much as Japan did? I, I don't know. I'm totally speculating. Yeah, no, that's all we can really do at this point because clearly you're not old enough to have lived through that because you're so young. And then I... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm old enough to remember when this film was released. I mean, that year. I didn't don't remember it the cinemas, but I am old enough to remember when these things came out. They are part of my childhood. But I, <laughs> as the political situation then, who knows? You know, I mean, I was old enough to hear about gorillas fighting in Vietnam and think of the lost in space giant <laughs> gorilla guy on top of the cliffs throwing rocks at our soldiers. There are gorillas fighting in Vietnam against our troops. Planet of the Apes time. That so. would be amazing. <laughs> it was an interesting image to have as a kid. But Steve, that was- you and I need to write that story. Oh, yeah, yeah we could. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Gorillas in Vietnam. This is a different kind of gorillas in the mist. Anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> so I wonder if part of the reason why some of the South Korean films didn't make it into the American pop culture as much is at least back in the 60s when this film was produced, the South Korea political landscape was very different than it is now. They were under a military dictatorship. They were not a democracy at the time. So I don't know if some of that might have had something to do with movies getting out. Yeah, maybe. I maybe. I mean, it's like I said earlier, it's it's – Sad to me that apparently only, I think it's, what, 48 minutes of this film exists in the original Korean. Yeah. I had not known and forgotten that, and when I turned it on to rewatch the other night, I was like, oh, I'll watch the subtitled version this time, because I didn't remember having done that before. <laughs> and and so I went, and I was like, oh, man, there's no subtitled version. So I looked it up online, and it's like... uh the original film does not exist anymore, so I guess we should just be grateful that this came over at all, because otherwise, we wouldn't have it. I don't know. What version of this do you have? I have the Midnight Movies version, where okay. it's a double feature with Conga. There are a lot of public domain versions, too. I don't know. Which one do you have? This was a blind buy for me. Uh-huh. Kino put it out on Blu-ray. Okay. And I got all excited. Kino's putting out this rubber monster monster movie. I've got to have this thing because clearly it's going to have subtitles and it's going to look great and have special features and it's going to be wonderful. It's Kino. Right. Yeah, no no yeah. subtitles. It does have a commentary track, which is cool. Is this the, the American Blu-ray version that you've got? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it came out yeah. earlier this month. Right. I wasn't even aware of it until I went looking for it last night, thinking, oh, maybe there's maybe there's another version that has subtitles. And that, uh, I was, that was when for I started it. to go down the there's no subtitles rabbit hole there. Yeah, the, the Blu-ray, I mean, it looks good, but yeah, no subtitles. Like I said, it's got an audio commentary, but then it's got a trailer from Monster from the Bottom of the Sea or Beneath the Sea, and then a Trailers from Hell episode about another totally different monster movie. Monster from the Beneath the Sea. Or something like that. Okay. I'd, I'd have to double check. Anyway, okay. it's a couple of weird special features to throw onto this movie, but it does have a commentary track, and I did listen to some of that. So I have a little bit of knowledge, but again, there's just not a lot about the movie because it got over here. It was played in the English language. Have we talked about why? Have we mentioned? I don't think we mentioned that yet. Why no. is it only in English? Go ahead. Well, <laughs> the South Korean film industry was not accustomed, let's say, to how the international film market worked. And when they sent it over to the U.S. to be dubbed for an international version, they sent the original elements. Ooh. Yeah. I don't think I actually even knew that. And the people who made the English language version, which was American International, didn't really save a lot of the material. So for a long time, this was it. Now, about 48 minutes has turned up of the original cut, but my understanding is that it just looks terrible. 
that it was sent to TV and just wasn't treated very well. Uh-huh. So, and I haven't seen any of that. I've seen a screen print or a still on one website, but that's it, and it just looks awful. And that, what a shame. Oh, man, I know, shame. right? And the good news is that the Midnight Movies print looks fabulous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't seen the Blu-ray, so I don't know if that looks even more fabulous. But the Midnight Movies print is beautiful. It's beautiful. The, the sound is great. The picture is great. It's in full widescreen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a marvelous uh, marvelous production of, of this uh this particular film, but you know, as film historians, we got to cringe every time I know you every- lose the original. That's like the William Shatner film Incubus that's in Esperanto. <laughs> All of the original elements, last I knew, had been lost, and right. the only reason it had been saved was because they turned up a a print with French subtitles, which means if you wanted in English, they had to kind of black out the French subtitles and then put English subtitles over it, Yeah, which is better than not having it at all. But still, you know, you wish you could see the pristine print the way it was intended. It's, it's really unfortunate. And, you know, as film lovers and people who, I guess in a way, we kind of archive or curate the stuff as podcasters and reviewers and things like that. We want right. that to exist and be out there. I was recording an episode of the Dorado Films podcast last night with the vice president of Dorado Films, and she was telling me about some of the film labs that had, uh, over in Italy that had burnt. You know, there was a fire, and right. it destroyed so many negatives and so many original elements of some of these films. You just can't help but, oh, man, if I had well, a time machine, you know? <laughs> London ever, After Midnight was fine mm-hmm. until they had all the prints recalled. And they had it in a storage facility that then had a fire and destroyed the only known elements of the film. So if you've seen London After Midnight out there and it's the real version, uh, there's probably people at TCM that want to talk to you. So, Well, well, well call me first and then I'll hook you up. Right, yeah. Because I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want to see London After Midnight? Although I've heard, you know, if you've seen the remake of it, you know that the story is not really very good. <laughs> yeah, but who who doesn't want to see Lon Chaney Sr. in that makeup doing stuff? I, I mean, do, even though I've heard that from people that uh, had seen it when it came out, in the vampire costume, he walks like Groucho Marx. So <laughs> that might be a little funny to modern audiences, seeing wow. him kind of crouch and lurch around in that vampire makeup. That's but still, interesting uh, we choice. want that film. We want that film. We're putting out a call. Anyone that's... Uh, got a copy of it please get in touch with somebody yeah no i keep hoping that you know like the thomas edison frankenstein film or nosferatu that somebody has a copy of it somewhere they didn't file it the way they were supposed to they scrolled it away forgot about it and then 20 years they don't know what it is right you know it's the same way that the that really good print of manos showed up Right. on the market just a couple of years ago and then thank god that uh, Ben was able to find that and and get it and restore it despite you know some legal hassles after that but the print we have now is gorgeous and it you know it would be nice it would be nice if Yongari turned up in in one of the film studio archives somewhere it would be nice as well. but i'm not counting on it no, no. The, the Kino Blu-ray that I have is in really good shape. The transfer is pretty spectacular. It's sharp. They did use elements from MGM. It does have the MGM logo at the very beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. But it is very, very sharp. It is so clear, in fact, that during that opening scene with the pan across the outer space, quote-unquote, you uh-huh. can see the fabric <laughs> that they printed the stars on. Yeah, that's... Uh... That may be a little more detail than we needed. So. Yeah, that's the... It's funny that when you 
when you transfer things to Blu-ray with modern technology, a lot of times you do pick up things that were basically never intended to be seen because right. of the way projectors were made back then and the way screens were made back then. It would erase things like seams and hidden wires and stuff just because of the between the the projector and the screen. They knew that when they made these things, and so something like this texture of the this canvas in the background would go away, or yeah. famously the wires in the War of the Worlds, George Powell's War of the Worlds. Now, I've seen that film projected on a big screen from 35 millimeter elements on a classic screen and you don't see the wires at all. But if you go and you look at the DVD, you do, which is kind of cringeworthy. Yeah. Film was a little more forgiving, you know, back, you know, for a lot of it was, it was. And you know, the silver screen, which literally was a silver screen Mm -hmm. was more forgiving too. So anyway, fabric stars and such, Aside, yep. the the print looks great, or the transfer looks great. I think the monster looks great on the Blu-ray. The monster itself, for people who haven't seen this, it looks like a dinosaur with a horn on its nose, basically. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's kind of a a T Rex design mm-hmm. without the short arms. Yeah, with but, longer arms, but or if you want to be a little less generous, it's kind of a less interesting knockoff of Godzilla. Yeah, well, of with course. A- <laughs> of course, Godzilla influenced this one. Godzilla became such a success. Of course, other people are going to make movies like that, and you can definitely see the Godzilla influence. Although, I also saw a lot of Gamera influence in this. Right. I mean, it was made in in 1967, so it's right in the middle of the Godzilla and Gamera craze. Right. And people that were working on this, you know, they definitely were looking at those and saying, okay, what can we take from here? What can we take from here? So we've kind of got the, the actual flamethrower in the mouth from Gamera. We've got the giant T-Rex kind of shape with spines from Godzilla. Mm-hmm. There are spikes on his tail, which I hadn't really even remembered from the last time I watched the movie. But that's kind of like the character Gorgon in my Daikaiju Attack book. Giant monsters are destroying Japan. Daikaiju Attack, the serialized giant monster story. When I put the spikes on his tail, I hadn't realized that Yongari had them. So it's, it's kind of a mashup of a lot of dinosaurs. It's not the greatest suit in the world. You know, there are details of it. The, the scales and the textures of it are really quite nice. Yeah. But in terms of the overall design, you know, it's not as interesting as Gorosaurus from the Godzilla series, I don't think. A giant T-Rex that fought con that kind of stuff mm-hmm. for me i wish it had been i wish they'd done something a little more interesting a little more original with it as it is it's kind of a mashup of of a bunch of toho and die monsters you can look at it and say yep that's a kaiju monster but it it doesn't have a lot to really differentiate it from a lot of the other quote-unquote generic kaiju monsters out there right. and i've been watching a lot of ultraman so you know i see so many different kaiju films or kaiju monsters excuse me out there and i i can imagine it can be tough right. to come up with something totally original i just wish that for being one of the few if not the only giant monster movie out of south korea they would have done something a little different you wish they'd just been a little more creative right. certainly they're you know the japanese monsters do incorporate elements from japanese mythology sure and- the Shinto religion and that kind of stuff. And in fact, in, in many ways the people think of the monsters as, as just giant beasts. And in a lot of ways, the Japanese Kaiju are 
actually kind of Shinto demon god kind of figures rather than physical monsters, which is one of the reasons my wife has a problem with giant monster movies in the fact that she always thinks she ought to be able to kill them. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't they kill this thing? Why does it keep coming back? And it's like, well, hon, it's because it's not really a physical monster. They may treat it like that in the later films, but it's very clear in the early films that these are, in some sense, supernatural beings. They may have pseudoscientific origins, but they're not rational creatures. They're not creatures that... uh, live in in our world in any way, shape, or form, or ever could. Right. I mean, you can definitely see something like that in uh, GMK, all monsters, you know. Yeah. yeah. That's probably the most on-nose example of that, I'd think. Right, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I really like GMK, and GMK was a a big influence on Mm -hmm. Daikaiju Attack, is that that thought, the thought that these were mystical creatures, as well as physical creatures, really permeated my my little brain and said yeah yeah we could, if, uh, if i was doing this on my own i could and then i actually did that on my own so <laughs> so hopefully at some point i'll do more daikaiju attack and you'll find out more about the backstory oh how- man don't tease me bro i know well <laughs> <laughs> it's like anything else if i can if i can make some more money with it i'd probably go back to it but on the other hand, you know, if we get enough people on this Patreon page and they're all going, we want more Daikaiju Attack. Well, yeah, I had three, four more stories plotted out, still do. So it's on the list. Right on. Anyway, if, yes, if anyway. the Koreans had been a little more, if they'd incorporated a little more of their own mythology and feeling into it rather than kind of trying to ape the Japanese giant monsters, I think they'd have been better off. As it turns out, for me, it's kind of in the same category as, as Gapa, the Trifibian monster. Oh, man. Um, which is, you know, it's interesting, but it's not iconic. True. So that's where I'm going with that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned some of the South Korean or just Korean mythology, and a little bit of that came into play when it came to the name of the monster. Uh, Yangari is a combination of a couple of words, Yang being dragon, and Gari actually came from... Bulgasari or Bulgasari, which is a Korean legend. So, you know, the name at least had a little bit of Korean influence. Yeah. So there's at yeah, least there that. You know, it's just, but I, I don't think there, I could be wrong. I don't think there's a Korean demon monster that looks like this. In no, fact, probably see, not. If you see Bulgasari, Bulgasari actually I think is a much more interesting monster design. Yeah. Bulgasari, the famous, infamous North Korean giant monster movie in which they kidnapped a Japanese crew to make monster movies for the dictator of North Korea. Yep. So it's a fun, dopey film. But the Bulgasari is actually a creature from Korean mythology. It's an iron-eating monster that -hmm. destroys everything, and it's evil, and it's just, you know, it did lend itself to uh, the Bulgasari film, and part of that word got incorporated into the title of this film and this monster. As far as other South Korean elements in this I have to admit to being an ignorant American, and I don't know as much about South Korean history outside of what I picked up from the commentary track so, right. <laughs> of, the, of the Blu-ray. So I, yeah, I, well, I the can't really say. Yeah. You should have had a good, a good depth of research that wasn't available to me. So Yeah, Steve Rifle did the commentary track. Cool. And, and he does a lot of these commentary tracks for a lot of the kaiju films and other monster movies. I was mentioning the Gamera influence, and as far as the monster design, yes, but as far as the film goes, in the mid-60s, Godzilla hadn't gone totally kid-friendly. They were getting right. there. But the Gamera films pretty much started. <laughs> From the beginning, they were almost 
Oh, we had almost. Yeah, almost. They had the little kid who's part of the the story, and he, he would befriend the monster, that sort of thing. And I see a little bit of that in Yangari as well with the character of Elu. The, the right. little boy in this movie, which was pointed out to me on the commentary track, is not really a Korean name, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ilu is just this little boy who figures out how to stop Yangari. Right. Well, on the um, sort the of. version I watched, that child is called Icho. <laughs> okay. And Ilo is the older. The older. He's not a sibling. The, am, am I mixing him up? I bet I'm yeah, mixing him up. Yeah, you're mixing him up. I think I'm pretty sure the the boy is Icho, and Ilo or Ilu is the scientist nope, guy. You're absolutely right. Yeah, right. I apologize. It is Ichu. That's correct. I'm fond of this film, but I, in no way could I kind of recommend it. this as a great film to start for your kaiju viewing. Oh, Unless no. you're a little kid. Yeah. In which case, it might work really well. Because I find that the older I get, the shakier this film <laughs> seems to me. One of the problems I have with the film is, you know, looking at it as an author and a lover of such things, is that the human elements of it never quite come together. They never seem to make a whole lot of sense. You know, we start with a wedding of a couple of characters, but then one of them is a test pilot who flies rockets and, you know, like every other test pilot and the movies can fly anything that has wings or rotors or anything that goes up <laughs> in the air. And, you know, and he's, he and his new bride are interrupted in their wedding night. It's like, what kind of society is it where you're on your honeymoon and your father-in-law calls you and says, hey, come back to work right now, kid. Wow. That's kind of weird and strange. And then they never follow that up. It's like, it's not really clear how any of the characters are related to each other. There's the sister who is older than Icho, who is, I guess, going out with a scientist, sort of, though at first they seem adversarial. It's, it's not really clear how the relationships work. And maybe it was clear in the Korean edition, or maybe it would be clear to people in the Korean edition. But in our edition, if you, even if you look it up on IMDb, only three of the characters have names. <laughs> you can't figure out even the names for the other ones. It, it makes it a little hard to... Hard to get into the film when it's hard to figure out who are these people, how are they related to each other, why do they care about each other. And that's just aside from the fact that the monster comes to the city and the, the government says, everyone hide. Yeah. And the scientist and his little brother and the little brother's sister, instead of hiding, they go running right toward the monster. <laughs> Not for any really appreciable reason except I guess the scientist wants to figure out the monster's weaknesses. And the little boy loves monsters, and the girl's trying to keep the other two out of trouble, but completely fails right. at doing that. There's a lot of stuff in the movie like that that just doesn't really work in terms of a narrative thing. As opposed to, you know, the really human narratives in the, the last couple of Godzilla movies we talked about. And that's one of the things that makes a really good kaiju film separate from a, a not-so-good not kaiju film, is that the human characters have arcs and they have some kind of story to them that you can relate to. Even if it's as simple as the heroes are reporters and they're reporting on the event and the bad guys have something going on. In this film, there aren't really any bad guys. There's no real human subplot. And even the connection of what's going on with the monster, it's like, first the astronaut goes into space and he's looking for an atomic test in the Middle East, they say, which is very strange. And then somehow, apparently that sets up a series of 
earthquakes that proceed in a line all the way to Seoul, and that we find out that that Yongari is responsible for these earthquakes. If you look at that, it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense how it could be the Mideast and then get all the way to Seoul. It doesn't make any sense that the earthquakes would have to basically proceed f- through North Korea to get there. And, and somehow North Korea is not even mentioned, but you know, I mean, that's politics of the time, I guess. There's just, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense in a lot of ways that the people behave that don't seem to make any sense in a grown-up rational world. But on the other hand, as I was watching, I was thinking, you know, if if you're a kid and you're watching this, you're probably really loving it because the kid is always doing something interesting. You know, he starts off by hitting the newlyweds with an itch ray, which makes them stop their car and take, <laughs> you know, start taking off their clothes. And then he's running off to find the monster himself and he gets separated from his parents and he goes through the sewers. He comes up, he can see the monster. Later, he hits the monster with the itch gun to see what happens. From a kid's fantasy standpoint, it works okay, but if you actually try to make a coherent story out of it, you just don't have enough information to make it really, really work on a grown-up level. I think you're right. I think when you watch the movie, you can tell that all the characters are related in some way. They all have relationships, but what those relationships are... Never tell you. I don't really know. I couldn't tell you. Like I said, maybe it was obvious in Korean. Right. Um, And uh, the dubbing on this is actually really pretty good i think overall it seems like i don't know for sure it's the titan titra group but it sounds to me like one of the main characters is being voiced by peter fernandez who worked in that group and on speed racer and stuff so the dubbing is pretty good although there's one point where they run into a a a military guy (laughs) i wrote that down (laughs) (laughs) go ahead if you've got the quote give the quote i only got the first part of it where the scientists are trying to get into a base area they want to you know, help out or whatever. And they're stopped by a couple of guards who tell them that there are missiles coming. They're using guided missiles. And then another line. And they just, there's another pause. And then he just says it again. And I, I can't I help. He says it like three times. Yeah. They're using guided <laughs> it's, missiles. It's almost like they've run into the guard is Torgo from Manos, the Hands of Fate. Yeah. It's like, there's no one here like that. There is no one here like that. <laughs> no one is here like that. You know, it's like it's just going to say the same thing over and over again. As someone that's a fan of dubbing, I found it odd that maybe that's what the the exchange was in the original language. But is come on, dubbers, couldn't you change that at least that little bit of weird repetitive dialogue up for us? I did think the dubbing overall was good. Like you said, I thought it fit. But every once in a while, there are some dialogue exchanges that just seem off like that right uh it, it technically it fits but mm, yeah i don't know yeah. the, the, you know it'll have long stretches where it seems to make sense and people are saying things that make sense but then it'll hit one of those moments where it's just like oh, what'd you run out of time that day <laughs> when you were translating it what, right. what what happened that doesn't make any sense at all they could have even just cut out that second sentence during that guard exchange and just cut that scene down by a second you don't have to have them repeat say just leave it just let it go right oh well there's a lot of stuff like that this is you know as i said before i enjoy this on some level but it's not a great kaiju film by any by any means i want to go back to the kid and the dubbing i appreciated the dubbing work on the child because a lot of times in these dubbed films with kaiju films and that sort of thing the kids are always screaming and so oh boy this kid wasn't like that and I appreciated right. and I think that it was so much. By a child too, 
and a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it would be like Corrine Orr or, uh, you know, June Foray or, or one of these famous voice actresses that would come in and do the kid voice as well. This one, it doesn't seem like that. It seems like there's an actual kid actor doing the lines. And I appreciated that because it sounded yep. more realistic to me. It, it wasn't, like I said, that over-the-top, almost bad anime style of, oh, boy, let's go, you know. Right. So I really liked that. <laughs> <laughs> And if you've seen enough anime, though, you know that the original voices are like that, too. They're exactly. They're the style. Yeah. So I did appreciate that. It seemed a little bit more naturalistic. Uh, as far as the different relationships, I mean, at the time, and I don't know how it is now, but at the time, it wasn't uncommon to have three or four generations all living under the same roof. So you would have these huge relationship units. But again, as an American viewer, I would have liked to have known who was who within the different relationships. Right. And what the right. connections yeah, were. I, I actually went back and I watched the beginning of the film again with the weddings mm-hmm. well there's not really a wedding scene it's like the married couple leaves the wedding and then we get a, a bunch of chat with the people that were at the wedding and i thought oh i w- clearly i wasn't paying attention that must have filled in these relationships for me before the the action started and i went back and i watched and it was like no it was all just small talk it didn't kind of tell us anything right about who these people were i almost got the feeling that the scientist and the astronaut might have been brothers maybe i don't know (laughs) you know or or maybe the two women were sisters somehow but that that doesn't seem to be right either so were they all just good friends i don't know and the fact that you don't know does hurt the film it it means that when something happens you're not really sure what the stakes are worth right that's a little disappointing that's true that's true and you mentioned the father-in-law interrupting the honeymoon the the honeymoon scene starts i think in the most odd way yeah <laughs> you're not going to be one of those <laughs> nagging wives are you right well you know i what? mean it's, it's, as they pan in i'm like okay this is clearly the the honeymoon and is this before or is this after what's what's going on here and it, the husband is asleep in a <laughs> yeah I, I certainly remember my honeymoon night and i definitely fell asleep in the chair while my wife was getting ready in the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure all of us can relate to that huh guys that's <laughs> happened to every one of us and all you know all <laughs> all you married women i'm sure that your spouse when you that's exactly what happened right <laughs> right and then it's like okay come back to work stop your honeymoon yeah just as right. soon yeah as soon as the wife finally convinces him you know oh a little sexy time's about to happen here dad calls right <laughs> i'm sorry honey i gotta go no first it's like i think my dad's playing a trick on me okay the last person that i would want to hear from is my father or my wife's father when that's about to go down but- right yeah, exactly <laughs> that, that is you, you know, I mean, that's in some ways that goes back to the old kind of hazing honeymoons where your right. friends would try to follow you and sing below your window and that kind of stuff. So maybe that's what's going on. But still, <laughs> you know, at the at the point that I pick up the phone and it's the father in law and he's saying, hey, I need you to come back to work right away. You're the only person that can do this job. I think at that point I'd be saying, I'll talk to you in the morning, dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If I didn't just say something that we won't say on Monster Kid Radio. (laughs) (laughs) But he does call him into work, and he does show up. And, of course, that's what kind of moves the story into, well, there's this traveling earthquake that you talked about that happened in the Middle East, which I thought was an interesting place to place. Yeah, um, very strange. Potential earthquake or And the weird thing is they're 
they're sending the astronaut up to do reconnaissance. They're shooting a space capsule up to do reconnaissance on this distant possible nuclear explosion, right? It's like, wow, don't they have spy planes? <laughs> yeah. You know, this is 1967. There were spy planes then. There were, you know, I think the Blackbird was even flying then. In America, of course, it may have been top secret. But the idea of shooting a, a space capsule up to check out something on the ground just seems kind of wacky on the face of it. It's doubly odd because at the time, South Korea didn't really have a space program. So all right. of this, you know, we're at a space station, you know, there's some sort of, that's all science fiction. None of that existed then. So why send a space capsule up? The only thing I can think of is that maybe because the government was a military dictatorship, they didn't want certain technology to be known outside. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's just it's a very odd way to to get into the story, uh, even for the time period. It, it is, and it creates this false kind of oh, we lost contact with him. What's going to happen? And the wife is all concerned. It's like here's a moment of drama. No, it doesn't matter. He reaches out to me. You know, it, right. it's all kind oh. of negated. It didn't matter. That whole scene didn't need to be there. This is one of the reasons why I, I'm really sad that the Korean cut of this film with the original language is missing. Because part of me thinks that these kind of issues, the kind of issues that make this not make sense to me in the 2000s, or even if I'd seen it as a kid, and I did see it you know, when I was a kid, though not the first release, things like that that wouldn't even made sense then, if we had the Korean translation of it, maybe it would be more clear what was going on. You know, maybe it'd be more clear why they thought this was a valuable thing, why they're sending up what looks like a Gemini or a Mercury space capsule. That has the ability to land. <laughs> that has the ability to land with retro rockets. Yes. Why they're sending that up with a guy in it to physically look out the window and tell them what's going on in the ground. <laughs> Just it's it's a very odd approach to surveillance, even for the 1960s. What can you see? Well, look out the window and tell – yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're in orbit. Look out the window and tell me what you see on the ground. <laughs> yep, that's, that's exactly how I would do it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they had to put all their special effects money into the monster suit, so that's the best they could – I don't know. Right. Who knows? I, I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe they just wanted to say, hey, we've got a space program. Yeah. It, this is the near future in which we have a space program right. to see if we can do cool stuff with it. Maybe. You know, you, we keep talking about the Korean translation, the Korean language version of this. At the end of the commentary track on the Blu-ray with Steve Rifle, and, and maybe this is me giving a spoiler about a commentary track, but he talks about some press material that was sent out around the world from the studios trying to promote the film. And there is one in broken English that talks about there being the biggest wedding in the country and Yongari being sent off to another planet to live happily ever after along or away from everybody else. And none of that happens in this film, which makes wow. me wonder <laughs> if some of the Korean language might have implied or discussed the kid convincing everybody to send the, the monster off to another planet to go live by himself and not hurt anybody anymore. Or right. I want Strangely, everybody to, yeah. the same thing that happened to Gamera at the end of the first Gamera film. Right. <laughs> right. Or this big wedding. You know, what What do you want to have happen now? I want them to have the best wedding in the world. You know, I, who knows? But right. I, I feel like, again, that's kind of lost. It is. And it's a shame. Instead it's of being sent off to another planet to live alone, away from people that it can hurt, they pretty much kill Yungari at the end of this. And yeah, totally. It's, they it's, totally kill him. They totally kill him. They kill him in kind of a gruesome way, too. It's, um, it is. It, really. You know, I'm like, oh, my goodness. They've sprayed him with 
stuff that's killing him, and now he's lying there bleeding from the anus. That's really spoiler. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I had yeah. forgotten that little detail. <laughs> so I guess you can cut that spoiler out if you want. You know, but- I'll, I'll give everybody a heads up at the beginning of this that we are spoiling it. But for all of its almost family-friendly trappings. The way they off Yungari at the end, and the way they just leave him laying there in the river, blood coming out of his backside. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not pleasant. No, at all. No, it's not. It actually, you know, when it when it happened, and I, I'd forgotten that that was his demise. And when it happened last night, it, it was just it was kind of horrifying to me. It was like it was enough that he died. <laughs> the blood, I couldn't help but think, you know, there's. If you live in an old house like we do, there are rodents in the house occasionally. There have been in the past. And one of the ways that you get them is with the, you know, the standard rodent poison. And those of you who know anything about science know that the poison is generally warfarin, which is a blood thinner, which basically causes these poor creatures to bleed out from various parts of their bodies and kills them that way. And I couldn't help but think it's like this poor guy is like a poor, he's like a mouse caught in, caught in a horrible trap. And there he is lying by the bridge, just bleeding out. It's awful. It, it is awful. <laughs> and a lot of times in these movies, at least some of the uh, gamma films and some of the more kid centric Godzilla films, if anything bleeds, it's a bright red, paint looking blood the or it's bl- green or it's green yeah the blood that like in camera uh the blood that comes out of yungari it looks re- i mean it's, it's gruesome it's gruesome <laughs> it's not like somebody just poured some red paint on the water and called it good it's gruesome it looks plausible oh god it's got a great oh i mean and there's another scene where a guy walks into a room and he's all bloodied because he was in the, he got trapped by yungari's rebel or whatever i was really surprised to see that as well that right. every once in a while there's this touch of oh yeah it's a monster movie they do horrific things and that also brings up the conflict in our our western minds anyway as to what's appropriate for a kids film true and certainly see, having a guy mangled in a car crash coming in and kind of bleeding out on your floor with the key piece of evidence of this camera that's a little gruesome for a kids film as as is the poor monster collapsing dying in the river and bleeding out at the end of the film it's just like but yeah. you know i mean in some sense we're used to or we should be, those of us that are kaiju fans and fans of Japanese cinema and world cinema for that matter are used to the fact that standards are different in different places. And sure. the, you know, the standards for nudity and gore in Japan have always been much different than here, you know, and if when I was in England briefly at the end of the 1970s, there were, you know, topless women on TV all the time and on page three of the major newspapers. So, you know, you get a little used to it, but it's still startling. It's startling, and then, of course, not just with world cinema, but the time. I mean, in right. the 80s, you can have a topless woman in a PG movie here in the States. Beastmaster right. has a topless bathing scene, and it's rated right. PG. Yep. So, I mean, the time can impact that yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not sure you can take off your clothes in, in PG-rated films anymore. Right. Which is, you know, I, I think is actually a step backwards because the kind of stuff that goes on in PG-13 films. Oh, boy. Uh, don't get me started. Yeah. Compared, like, yeah. Did we need another rating? Did we need – couldn't we actually – allow people to be a little more grown up in PG and and then push it up to R the way it used to be. But thank you, Steven Spielberg, for inventing PG-13. <laughs> so you can rip the heart out of some guy in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And blow a gremlin up in a microwave. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> Although that, I don't think that one was PG-13, but it was around the same time that kind of got people thinking. Right, yeah, hmm. it was definitely the heart ripping out scene. Yeah. Spielberg did not want an R rating for his Indiana Jones film, but he definitely wanted that heart ripping scene. Sure. Definitely well, wanted When you got to rip out a guy's heart, I mean. <laughs> you got to, and then send him alive into the into the pit. So it almost sounds like something that might happen in one of my versions of Manos. Huh. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. So uh, the reason I bring up the gruesomeness and all of that is because a lot of the research that I did online about this film, there are so many people that talk fondly about having watched this movie as a child on Saturday afternoon TV. Right. And it makes me wonder if any of that that they saw on television was cut as well, but I don't know. I don't remember. You know, I know I saw it around uh, the early 1970s on television, and I don't remember the horrible, gory ending to it <laughs> or the guy you know bleeding from the head coming in and, and delivering a camera before he presumably just dies the way everybody looks yeah because when so, he comes in they just they take his camera and that's sad right so they don't really deal with him they take his camera everyone looks at the floor where he's lying down dead probably and then just move on we never hear about him again and that's a, that's another again this is not a great film. That's another knock against the film is that the, the scenes where the world leaders or the whatever they are, the military is kind of talking to each other. Those scenes, for the large part, seem completely disconnected they really do. from the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. It's just like, now we're going to talk about Yongari to fill up time here before our next monster stomping sequence. So, you know, and again, since we don't know, we know that one of those guys is the father of one of the women on the honeymoon, we think, but it's never really clear. So it's not like we have a lot of reason to care about what these guys are saying and what they're doing and that kind of stuff. It it almost seems like they were just aping things they'd seen in Japanese monster movies, Japanese kaiju movies, without kind of getting the context of them. If you know, if you understand what I mean. Sure. No, it's like they tried to copy the kaiju formula with very broad strokes, but they never really dialed down into what, at least, well, we've talked about it quite a bit. What we enjoy about a lot of these movies is the balance between the giant monster action and this really cool, sometimes espionage-like story happening with the humans. Right. Yeah. The balance between the humans and the monsters is what makes the best of these really Mm -hmm. work well. And this is, uh, this is... Again, this is not one of them. It's it's more interesting as an oddity and as a, a kids' film than than it is as a giant monster classic for certain. It's interesting though that you mentioned that the end of the press kit said that they take the monster and they ship him off somewhere where he can do no harm. I also watched the 1999 slash 2000 remake of Young Gary, which is. Um, done with CGI with an Ameri- largely English speaking cast pretty much and that's just it's a weird thing and the CGI looks about on the level that you'd expect on a sci-fi film from oh, no. uh, you know 10, 10 years ago even though it was claimed to be state of the art when it came up but at the end of the film Biangari is actually shipped off to some place where he can live in peace oh uh, after saving the earth from in that one Yongari is discovered as a pile of ancient bones of a, you know, a giant reptile far larger than any Tyrannosaurus. And then is 
there's some scheme of a guy that wants to make money with it somehow, but aliens come and use a beam from outer space and regenerate Yongari into a giant monster and then proceed to like teleport him different places to cause havoc. It's about as disjointed and weird as it sounds. At the end of the film, the humans break the aliens' control on Yongari, and the aliens send a nastier monster down to beat him up. And, of course, we have some CGI monster-on-monster stuff that's... uh, Well, it it certainly made me have an appreciation for all the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World (laughs) CGI monster fights. Um, But at the end of it, Yongari defeats the evil monster. The aliens are like, oh, okay, maybe we don't need to take over the Earth with monsters for whatever reason we thought that was a good idea and leave. And the last scene of the film is, again, spoilers, (laughs) is helicopters carrying Yongari away from the city in the same way that, if you'll remember, in, uh, I think it's King Kong versus Godzilla, they attach King Kong to balloons and call him across the the city to fight Godzilla or whatever they're doing with him at that point. So there are little echoes. But it's interesting that maybe that's the way the original one was intended to end. Perhaps. the way that the remake does end. So, as opposed to poor pathetic thing bleeding out. Oh, man. In the river. (laughs) It's an image that, I mean, when I think about this movie, that's one of the images that's going to pop it because it's such a, a gruesome, like, whoa, kind yes. of image which is unfortunate i think that, there's yeah. just no way that you can not see that as uh, a grown-up yeah you can't see that. that that is what's actually happening which is too bad but but anyway there's there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense and i mean in some sense it's nice and you get egalitarian that the the heroes are always taking their wives slash girlfriends with them when they go to confront this really dangerous monster but at the point where um Yangari has shot down a number of jets because suddenly in the last 15 minutes of the film, he's developed the ability to shoot lasers out of his horn <laughs> as well as brief fire. And the heroes all get in a helicopter and decide that they're going to circle around the monster and spray him with this stuff to kill him. And this is not a military helicopter. I mean, I guess it is a military helicopter, but the people in the helicopter are the scientists, his girlfriend, her little brother, the military guy that's flying it, and and his uh, newlywed bride. Those are the people in the helicopter that are saving the world. Again, it's one of those, why did they think this was, <laughs> why did they think that worked from any standpoint? I'm, you know, I'm sure it's like, okay, honey, we're all going to take out this monster that just shot a jet in half with its laser beam. But don't worry, our slow-moving helicopter will do the job just fine. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, guys. Sorry. You have to ignore that to enjoy this film. You have to. I really think this film, even though at times it seems with the honeymoon scene, even it kind of seems to pretend it's for all audiences. It's really shooting at the little kid audience that the later Gamera movies, Gamera movies after the third one were aimed just smack dab at kids. And Godzilla films got that way, too, almost immediately after. Mm-hmm. That must be what they were shooting for, even though there is this pretense of having elements for older people. Because unless the sensibilities of storytelling are very different in Korea than they are here, the story just doesn't make any sense <laughs> for an older person. It, it is something that you need to uh, either just let go or really work your brain muscles to make it all make sense as you watch it. 
Right. It, 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 there's no middle ground there. That said, I mean, I'm glad I have the Blu-ray. I, I'm glad I oh, watched I'm it. I'm very glad yeah. that I have this um, the Midnight Movies edition of it, which is just beautiful. I know that there are public domain copies of this out there, too. I, I'm pretty sure you can even see it on archive.org. Right. And I'm very glad for that. This is not, you know, even if I were going to continue rewriting public domain monster movies, I probably wouldn't go for this one because the it would just be so much work to try to make it all make sense. And you don't want to do everything. You know, it's like I'm doing two versions of Manos. I've done the funny one, which is already out, which is the, in some sense the easy one, and then the much harder to do, make it really scary one. And this one... I'd feel bad if I made it a comedy, and it would be too much work to make it really a serious story for me. Anyway, although, if, if you guys want to shoot it and hire me to write the screenplay, I will write a screenplay that'll be much better than the 1999 one for Yongari. <laughs> so, so you're basically saying that Yongari will not turn up in Daikaiju Attack 2? No, I don't think so. Three? Uh, probably not. How about part four? Come on, you said you had your three more. Come on. Uh, no, part four is in theory the King Kong one, I think, if I remember right. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> of course, it won't really be King Kong. But... Part five is when he goes back in time. Part six is when he gets shrunk down. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, Steve, I appreciate you, you talking about the movie with me, at least. I mean, I had fun talking about it, and I'm glad I watched it. And I probably will go back and watch it again, uh, especially oh, yeah, for the commentary too. track, because it, it does have some moments that are fun. I do like the monster design. Too. I may part, even pick so. up the Blu-ray so I can yeah. hear the um, – because I'm sure they had much more time to do research and find out things about it than, than you and I did and had sure. better access to stuff. The funny thing was trying to research this on the internet, which is the, the go-to method now. There just isn't that much info on it. No. Just not. Well, Steve, again, thank you. I appreciate it. And I wanted to do something else with you before we let you go. Oh, cool. Have we ever played the Classic Five with you? Never have. Well, let's do it. You up for it? <laughs> I'm totally up for it. Every awesome. time you do it, I think, oh, man, I've never done that yet with them. Yep. Let's see how it goes. All right. So I've got a deck of cards here that one day I will make commercially available somehow. I have friends that know how to do card decks, so talk to me. All right. All right. All right. Uh, I've, I've been shuffling them. I've been putting myself on mute while you've been talking. I've been shuffling them. Uh, so you don't hear the shuffle, but they are shuffled, and I'm going to just draw five randomly, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. For listeners who don't know, the Classic Five game is I've got a deck of cards here that have yes or no, this or that style questions regarding classic monster movies. And the point is just to do uh, a rapid-fire Q&A with the guests. So, Steve, question number one. What classic monster movie would you like to see turned into a live-action TV show? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That is so far out of out of the kind of thing I thought I was going to get from this that I I don't know. Um, how about the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad? Ooh, that'd be fun. Yep, that'd be fun. All right, card number two. Oh, I think I know where you're going to go with this: John Agar or Nick Adams? Ooh, Nick Adams. Okay, okay. Uh, I love Agar though. Yeah, it's I, just I do that too. Um, uh, there are a couple of films that Nick Adams is in that are probably in my my top twenty. Really? Uh, favorite films, yeah. You know, I love Monster Zero, for one, and the Frankenstein Conquers the World is really... If he were in The War of the Gargantuas, that would be a pretty perfect film. Yes. But I'll have to settle for the Frankenstein one, which he's awesome in. Have I talked with you about the movie, I think it's Mission Mars, with him and Darren McGavin? Is that the one that has like the weird eyeball thing on Mars that looks at them from the spaceship and I, stuff? I, I think, think so. Seen, yeah, I, we haven't mentioned it 
together, and I've only seen it once, and the print was really crappy. Yeah. But it's a strange film. But I, any, I dig it. Stuff Nick Adams is in is cool. I wish he'd lived longer. I wish he'd done more. Yes, I agree. I agree. All right, card number three. Question number three. The Munsters or the Adams Family? Adams Family. Okay. I like the Munsters a lot, too, but the Adams Family is – it holds up much better, and it's a much more interesting kind of concept. I think so, too. I think so, too. Although the monster is just fun, just popcorn. Oh, yeah. Enjoyable. It's great fun. I, you know, I've got seasons of both on DVD. I've got the monsters movies and stuff. So, Son of Dracula or Dracula's Daughter? Ooh. I, you know, I need to do a rewatch on both of these. I like Dracula's Daughter, but it, it's kind of slow and weird in a way. The script for Son of Dracula is really, really good. I've just always had, you know, and Paul McComas will take me to task for this. I've always <laughs> had trouble with Lon Chaney playing Dracula. Uh-huh. You know, if Bella Lugosi, Bella Lugosi were in that movie, that would be the clear winner. I guess I'm going to go with Son of Dracula because I think, oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to forgive Lon and go with Son of Dracula. Okay. Okay. Fantastic that you mentioned Bela because he's on the last question here. What Bela Lugosi role should Boris Karloff have played? Oh, my. Oh, that's... Hmm. That, well, you know, the trick is should. Because mostly I would not trade Boris and Bela. The thing that springs to mind immediately is Boris Karloff would have been a terrific Dr. Miracle in Ooh. The Murders in the Rue Morgue. But Bela Lugosi is terrific in that film, too. So I, I hate to kind of do that. It's like trying to pick something that Bela did that Boris could have improved on gets hard because a lot of the stuff that you'd want to get rid of Bela Lugosi from is a lot of his poverty row things. Mm-hmm. And I, I wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to do that at all. You know, it might've been fun if they switched roles in the, the Raven just to switch them huh. so that Bela okay. is the, the, the mad killer and Boris is the scientist. That might be fun. So I guess I'll say the miracle role, not that I want to get rid of Bela in that I'd actually just like to have seen Boris's take on that. It would be interesting. I, I love murders in the room morgue, but yeah, I could see that. Do you have one for that? Is there something that springs into your mind? Oh man. You know, I, I mean my, I guess my immediate would be just switch them in black Friday as they were supposed to be in the first place. But, Oh yeah. But yeah, that that's a cheat. Been. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> That that one is hard, and uh, no, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'd have to yeah. think about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's hard because most of the films that they did together are really, really good. And yeah. Most the films that they did separately that you would have liked to have seen the other one in are really, you know, they're really, really good at it. Probably right after we hang up this call, something will pop into my oh, head. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's, it. that's how it works, right? I'll look on my right? Boris and Bela database, which is a real thing that I've <laughs> used to try to keep track of which of their films I have and don't have, and I'll go, oh, yeah, Boris would have been so much better in this. It would have been funny to see Boris in any of the Ed Wood films, though. Oh, wow. <laughs> Pull the string. <laughs> Snips and snails and puppy dog tails. That's awesome. Pull the string. Oh, that's great. I love it. Oh, I love it. That's great. Okay, that's it for me now. I want to see him in. <laughs> yeah, it would be fun. Ed Wood directing Boris Karloff. Wow. Ed Wood, it's Boris, Boris Karloff. That's that's a thing. Yep. <laughs> 
Well, Steve, again, thank you for taking the time to chat about Yungari with me. And uh, we'll have you on the show again in the future, of course. Uh, You're one of my irregulars. I love having you on the show. Oh, I love being on the show. It's a lot of fun. Definitely. I enjoy it as well. SDSullivan.com is where people can find everything they need to know about you. And that'll click you through to the Patreon, or you can go to CushingHorrors.com to get there directly. And if you want to see Manos, you can go to ManosFilm.com as well. And before we leave, I want to thank everyone that had really nice things to say about our Godzilla podcast that you and I did together recently. That seemed to be very popular online, and people wanted more of them, and I'm sure we'll do more of them, won't we? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of kaiju films. I I like talking about the Godzilla movies with you, and then Tony Wendell from The Gigantic Project. I always enjoy chatting with him as well. So I think between the three of us, we're going to have them covered here soon. You know, Which, on the one hand, is good, but on the other hand, then we're going to run out of movies to talk about, right? Because there's no other monster movies out there than those. (laughs) We will have no more movies to talk about. Right on, man. Well, again, thanks, Steve, and uh, you have a good rest of your day, all right? Yeah, you too. And happy 2016 to you. Happy 2016 to you and everybody else out there. SDSullivan.com or CushingHorrors.com. That's where you want to go to find out more about what Stephen D. Sullivan's got cooking. He's got a lot coming up. Steve and I chat a lot off mic through Facebook, email, that sort of thing. And I know he's got big plans for 2016, and he wants you guys and gals to be part of them. I'm excited to see what he comes up with. I've been listening to his story, Canoe Cops vs. the Mummy, over on the Christopher R. Mim audio cast. I dig it. It's got mummies, it's got the canoe cops, and it's on Christopher R. Mims' podcast. I'm a huge fan of Mims' work. He's a friend of the show, and not to get away from Steve, but you're going to hear more about Chris here in a second. Anyway, sdsullivan.com. Check him out. Steve, thanks for taking the time to be part of the show and part of the Monster Kid Radio, your regulars. I really wish you the best. I mean, you've inspired me over the years, even before I knew you. So if there's anything that we can do here at Monster Kid Radio to help support you, well, you know we're all about You know what? You know that I'm all about it. Today, modern man is preoccupied by the mysteries of outer space. Scientists are probing farther and farther away from Earth. And yet, here on this very world we live in are hidden mysteries. Mysteries better left alone. For if they are disturbed, they could destroy the world. And now, an expedition goes to a strange South Sea island. Forbidden Jungle To a forbidden village Breaking taboos that anger the gods Gapa! Gapa angry! Selfish whim of a magazine publisher. In this park, I will have strange tropical animals. <laughs> Results in horrible destruction.
The monsters can actually think. And in addition, they can communicate with others of their own species. Worldwide terror. successfully starting rocket motors to continue flight over and out. Next step, Mars, 35 million miles away. Mission Mars. Three astronauts on a mission to the forbidden reaches of the red planet, defying the elements, inviting death and disaster. Darren McGavin, who gambled his life on a fantastic mission to a world no other living man had ever seen. Oh, darling, I'm so scared. Nick Adams, who shared the incredible odyssey, living an adventure beyond his wildest dreams. Mission Mars. They met their destiny on a planet that time forgot. An adventure that smashes the barriers of man's imagination. Watch out, the ball is opening! Journey into double terror with the late night double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. Hello, this is Raider Director Christopher R. Mim, the master of the Mimiverse. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio with Derek M. Cook, the greatest person I've ever met, sure. (laughs) Gangari, Monster from the Deep, like I said earlier, was released on Blu-ray by Kino earlier this month. As of right now on Amazon, you can get it for $16. I've been real interested in what Kino's been doing lately. They've been putting out a number of classic cult 
horror movies, science fiction films. They also put out The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. At the same time, they put out Yangari, so I'm going to be talking about that here in the near future as well. Last year, they put out a Blu-ray of The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, a Jess Franco monster movie. Just lots of good stuff coming out of them, so pay attention to what they've got going on over at KinoLorber.com. Hey, before we wrap up, I want to talk about something that somebody posted on Facebook the other day. Scott Woodard posted on Facebook the other day something that I think monster kids all over need to know about. Scott is one of the men behind the G2V podcast and about a dozen other shows. And he simply posted a link and said, Derek, you know about this, right? The link was www.whitezombieroadshow.com. Turns out, in October, White Zombie's going to be hitting the road. We're going to see the film play in some locations across the country. So far, I'm seeing L.A., Denver, Chicago, New York City, and Miami. So that's five cities. Hey, guess what? There's a sixth. It's Portland, Oregon. On October 8th, 2016, White Zombie's going to be playing here in the area. If you're a local, put this on your calendar. I know I'm going to be there. We're going to start planning a Monster Kid Radio crash early so we can get as many people out there. I don't know where it's playing. I don't know the details. I know the website says that this is going to be a unique experience in every city. Stay tuned for details. So whitezombieroadshow.com. Head over there, follow the link in the show notes. And just so you know, when you go to the website, the trailer for White Zombie, at least the audio, plays right away. Kind of like this. From Haiti. Land of the voodoo. Comes the most infamous cult of all. Bela Lugosi. As Murder Legendre. I see. Master of the Undead Damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombies. Yes. They are my servants. This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves. His instruments of terror, and now this fiend plots to possess a woman. Pink boy, a silver moth, a glass of wine, or perhaps a flower. Keep it, monsieur. Keep it. You may change your mind. Not dead. Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed a certificate. I saw them bury her. Captive in the borderland between life and death. Her brain drained of the life spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. As mindless creatures carry out his cursed will, terror explodes in horror and heartquake. Zombie! Halabi! Halabi! Never eyes so evil, never powers so potent, 
Never magic so black. Bela Dracula Lugosi as the master of the white zombie. Before we sign off, I want to let you know that MonsterKidRadio.net is where you need to go to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. Here you can find a link to our Facebook group. So if you know about any upcoming screenings for classic monster movies that you want to post about, or if you're a Facebook user and just want to chat with Monster Kid Radio listeners or with me, well, that's one way you can do it. Another way you can do it is just by sending us some feedback. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call our voicemail line and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Got a bunch of other things going on over on our website as well. Links to every song that's appeared here on the show. A link to last month's holiday gift guide. So if you're still looking for some things to spend your Amazon gift cards on, well, there's a place you can do it. Our archive is over there. You can listen to every single episode of Monster Kid Radio leading up to this one and next week's, which is going to have Christopher R. Mim back on the show. It has been way too long since I've had my friend, Mr. Mim. On the show. And next week for episode 252, we are going to get Mimfected. Yeah, I, I said that. Mimfected with Christopher R. Mim when we talk about his upcoming film, Where Skeeto, Nazi Hunter. And we're going to talk about one of our favorite actors from these classic monster movies from the 50s and sometimes into the 60s. We're talking about one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio. We're going to talk about my man, John Agar. That's going to be a lot of fun. I am looking forward to having Chris on the show next week. And if you have any questions for Chris, well, try to get them to me by Friday night through one of those contact methods that I mentioned earlier, Facebook, email, or voicemail, and I'll run them by him. I'm recording with him this upcoming Saturday, the 23rd. So if you get it in before then, I can ask him whatever questions you have. We can talk about whatever we want. should be a fun conversation. Between now and then, though, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Sarsaparilla Godzilla. That belongs to the band Bottle Caps for Dollars. You can look them up on Facebook. Like I said, they're on Reverb Nation, or you can buy their album over at bottlecapsfordollars.bandcamp.com. The album is episode one, and coincidentally rhyming, it's a lot of fun. Go check it out. Let them know the Monster Kid Radio sent you, and I'll talk to everybody next week. <laughs>